0: Well, if you've been with us this summer, you'll know that we are in a sermon series that we're calling Songs for the Journey. We are looking at this little collection of psalms in the back of the Psalter called the Psalms of Ascent. These were songs that God's people would sing every year as they made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the great feasts. And what we're doing as we preach through these psalms is we're reminding ourselves that we too are on a journey. Uh, We too are pilgrims. People who follow Jesus, which is essentially what a Christian is, someone who follows Jesus, people who follow Jesus are not those who settle down and who stagnate and who are comfortable, but they are people who are on a journey, who are on on the move, who are always moving on to the next thing, upward and onward on this upward calling towards God in Jesus Christ. You know, in this time of pandemic, when so much of us wants to go back to the way things were, we're reminded with these psalms that God is always calling us to move ahead to whatever new thing that he has for us. So these are the songs that we can sing for our journey. So today we're looking at Psalm 130. Psalm 130, we're calling it uh, the mercy song, the mercy song. And I, I really like this psalm. It's quite different from some of the other psalms that we've looked at. Previously, a lot of the psalms that we've looked at have focused on the external obstacles and threats on this journey, on the pilgrimage that we're on. We've looked at the threats of heat, and the sun, and the moon, and the the enemies in the mountains, and and the beasts in the hills. Well, this psalm is a little different because even though it's still about the pilgrimage, it is less about the external journey, and it's more about an internal journey. Uh, It focuses not on the external threats out there, but the internal threats in here. About what we battle against inside of us as we make our way as pilgrims following after Jesus. You know, when I was in high school and college, I used to do a lot of uh, backpacking. Um, This was back before, you know, like when I used to be able to have hobbies (laughs) way back then. Um, I used to do a lot of backpacking. And um, I don't know if you've ever been backpacking before, but you know, when you're out in the mountains and you're hiking and you've got a big pack on your back and you're just walking for miles and miles and miles for hours and hours, you can go for long stretches of time in complete silence. Um, And and in that journey, you begin to have a lot of time for introspection. Um, You begin to think about a lot of stuff. You think about your life, you think about your soul. Um, Maybe some stuff that you sort of keep um, out of your mind in normal life comes swarming to the surface in those long stretches of silence as you are on this journey. And so, so maybe that's what's happening to, to this pilgrim who wrote this psalm. As he makes this long journey to Jerusalem, he's thinking about his own life. He's thinking about his soul. He's thinking about what's going on inside of his heart. And what we're going to see is that he doesn't like what he sees down there that he's not real happy with himself. He's not real happy with what he sees inside of his soul. He's wrestling with a lot of guilt. He's less wrestling with a lot of shame, and it begins to send him into despair. That's where this psalm begins, right there down in the, the pit. And yet by the end of the psalm, we see he is up in the heights. He's on the, he's on the top. He's, he's full of assurance. And so what we see is this psalm itself is a journey from the depths, to the heights, in short eight verses, from the depths to the heights, from guilt to joy, from shame to freedom. And that's good news for all of us who struggle with guilt, for all of us who might be struggling with shame or worthlessness or a sense of failure in this time. This psalm shows us how we too can move in that same journey from the depths to the heights. So let's look at that journey. Let's look at how we can take it with with this psalmist. So I'm just got two simple points: got the depths and got the heights. The depths and the heights. Okay, so let's begin with the depths. Let's begin at the beginning. Verse one says this: Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear. My voice. You can see from the beginning that this person who wrote the psalm is a person who is in the depths. Now, of course, this is a metaphor. This is a symbol. He's not actually in a pit or in a hole or in an ocean. Um, it's like saying, "No, I'm down in the dumps." He's 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 feeling a deep emotional a- a- and psychological discouragement. It's like he feels like he's in a sinkhole or, or that he's in a bottomless pit. Or that he's drowning in the ocean, and that he can't find a foothold, and that, and that he's, he, he just can't breathe. He feels, he, he feels like the life is getting sucked out of him. And why does he feel this way? What is the source of this person's despair? We'll look at verse 2 and 3. It's, he says this, Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And verse 3, he mentions his record of sin. So, What we see here is that he's not just feeling this general depression, a general sadness. This has to do with his own sense of sin, his own guilt, his own shame. He's overwhelmed with his mistakes, with his failures. He doesn't like what he sees inside himself. He doesn't like himself. His his despair is rooted in his sin and in his brokenness. So I think that this speaks to, to us in a couple of different ways. I think, I mean, just to speak, just to paint with a broad brush for a moment, I think, it, I think there's two kinds of people listening this morning um, that need to hear a message here. The, the first is for those of you who find yourself exactly in this place where the psalmist is, that, that you actually are also in a place of deep discouragement uh, and that you are looking inside of yourself, and, 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 and you don't like what you see. Maybe you're disgusted with what you see. I know that some of you are feeling this way, because I've talked to you, and I know that some of you are feeling this way, because I have felt this way, and I am part of some of you. <laughs> you know, a friend told me um, recently that before COVID, he thought he was a great guy. Uh, he thought he was a great husband and a great dad, uh, but what he said is that during this time, he has seen his true self, uh, that he's selfish, that he's petty, that he's impatient, uh, that he's quick-tempered. And I just said, amen, brother. <laughs> I'm feeling that too. You know, when you, you know, just imagine a water bottle. I'm holding a water bottle, an imaginary water bottle. When you shake a water bottle, what comes out of the bottle is what is inside of the bottle, right? And when your life is shaken— What comes out of you is what was already inside of you. And so it's not like you just had sort of like one one one-off impatient moment when you lost your temper. No, no, no. These things have been in me all along. It's just that the stress has shaken them out of me. Stress exposes who we really are. And so a lot of us have been shaken during this pandemic. A lot of us have been shaken, and maybe some of us are dealing with some serious guilt and shame about what we've seen come out. You know what I'm talking about? And so maybe you're like me, where you have felt pretty disappointed with yourself. Sometimes I feel like I shouldn't even be up here preaching to y'all, because if you knew some of the things that went through my mind and some of the things that I did and thought the last few months, you probably wouldn't want me preaching up here. So maybe you're like me. You're feeling pretty disappointed with yourself. Or maybe you've made a really, really big mistake Or or maybe in this time you have fallen back into an addiction that you thought you had beaten. Or or maybe during this time you have felt pretty directionless and and unproductive and, and, and are just starting to feel worthless. So many of us, I think, are feeling guilt and shame and failure and worthlessness. And I want you to know, if that's where you are, this psalm is for you because God meets us in the depths And there's hope for guilty people. There's hope for shamed people. This is at the heart of the gospel. There is hope for you. This psalm is for you. But I think there's a second kind of person who might need to hear a message here, and that's someone who might not be feeling any guilt or any shame or any sense of sin whatsoever. Now, I want to be careful here uh, because it could be that you are just in a very healthy, Uh, place in your life with God, and that you're walking with God, and you feel connected to Him, and you're walking in the Spirit, and you have a clear conscience, and you feel loved by God. And that's wonderful. I mean, seriously, that's excellent. (laughs) Um, But there is another reason why you could not be feeling any guilt or sense of sin, and that could be that you are out of touch with God, and you are out of touch with yourself. The truth is, friends, that our God is a holy God, and He is worthy of our fear as it says in verse four. That means a holy reverence. God is not this nice pushover grandpa who pats us on the head and laughs and gives us a piece of candy when we're naughty. No, God is, a, is whole, we call him the holy trinity. And holy means uh, uh, a blazing purity, a God who cannot tolerate sin. Now, I used to think it was weird that all of the most mature Christians that I knew we're always talking about their sin and their need for forgiveness. I was like, man, shouldn't you be over that? Like, graduated or something? Like, shouldn't you be some Jedi Christian who, who doesn't sin anymore? But the older I've gotten and the more mature I've I've grown, I've realized that the more we know God, the more we walk with God, the more that we see of God's holiness and His glory and His grandeur and His beauty, the more we realize how far from God we actually are, that's what Christian maturity means, not to sin less, but to see how much mercy we actually need. And so it could be that if you feel no guilt and you have no sense of sin in your life right now, it could be that you are out of touch with God and you are out of touch with yourself because the more we see of God, the more we see his holiness, and the more we see his holiness, the more we see our need for mercy. Mercy. So whether you feel guilt or not, whether you feel shame or not, the truth is that objectively speaking, we are all guilty sinners in need of mercy. We are all deserving of God's judgment. We're all deserving of wrath. Given our record of wrongs, as it says in verse five, who can stand? And of course, the answer to that question is no one. No one can stand. Sin is real. Guilt is real. And we are all guilty, every one of us, and so every one of us begin the journey of the soul in the depths. That's where the journey starts. But let's move to the heights. That's where this psalm ends. The psalm is remarkable because it begins in the depths of despair, but by the end, in just eight short verses, this guy's in the heights of assurance. How does that happen? And, and, and how does that happen for us? How do we move from the depths to the heights? What do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our shame? Well, let's talk first about two ways we tend to handle our feelings of guilt that don't actually work, okay? Uh, the first is that sometimes we suppress our guilt. We suppress or deny our guilt. This is actually very popular in our modern culture because we have been often told, and you have probably heard it throughout your life, that guilt is not actually healthy. Um, you've probably heard of this guy, uh, Sigmund Freud. Uh, Sigmund Freud, who's sort of the father of modern psychology, he was the first person to say that guilt is essentially a pathological disorder. Uh, it's a pathological disorder that has been given to you by your parents and by your religion and by society, um, and that the healthy person, Freud said, must reject the concept of guilt as a social construct and move towards self-acceptance. Self-acceptance. Now, this has become pretty much the standard way of dealing with guilt in modern secular psychology. So if you feel guilty, uh, just tell yourself that there's nothing actually wrong with you. You have the freedom to decide what's right and wrong for yourself. So don't let anybody put a guilt trip on you. Accept yourself. Feel good about yourself. That's how we handle our guilt. Here's the problem with that, y'all. That may work for a short period of time, but it does not make the deeper sense of shame go away. About the same, Let me tell you about another guy who wrote about the same time as Freud. He was another German intellectual. His name was Franz Kafka. And Franz Kafka saw what was happening in the world of psychology. And Kafka actually said something that is very brilliant. This is what he said. He said, the problem modern people have now is that we all feel like sinners, though independent of guilt. Now, that is seriously deep, y'all. I mean, what I think he means is that we've gotten rid of the modern concept. We've gotten rid of the concept of guilt in our modern era, but we still feel deep down that something's wrong with us. In fact, he wrote a whole short story about this called The Trial, which is this super creepy story about a guy uh, who is condemned as guilty but he's never told his crime. And so he he goes around feeling condemned, but he doesn't know why. And this is a parable of modern consciousness. And I think Kafka's right, because if you just go to the route of modern pop psychology and deny guilt and just tell yourself that you're great, there's still that deep feeling that you cannot shake, that something's wrong, that something's not right with you, That, that, that something's broken, that something's off, We feel like we're sinners, even if we deny that it's true. And so suppressing guilt doesn't work, because guilt is real. We actually are sinners. So that's one way we handle guilt. But another thing that we often do to handle guilt is we try to work our way out of our guilt. When you feel guilt or shame, when I do, when you sense that something is wrong with you, another natural reaction is to work really hard to prove yourself, and to kind of demonstrate that you're good, that you're really not all that bad. There's this wonderful classic movie uh, that is one of my favorite movies called The Mission, um, starring Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. And De Niro in this film plays the slave trader and a tyrant, basically terrible all-around guy. And in the movie, he actually kills his own brother, eventually, which snaps him awake and helps him realize what a deplorable person he is. And so he is so guilty, racked with guilt, and he feels like what he must do is to prove himself, to work his way out of his guilt. So as an act of penance, he ties this massive uh, pack to his back, this huge bundle, and he drags it for miles and miles and miles up a mountain. He thinks he must work his way out of his guilt. He must prove his worthiness. He must demonstrate how sorry he is that he is actually good. And yet this is another way that we deal with our guilt. Most of us don't literally do penance, but we do it in other ways. We work really hard. We try to achieve. Uh, We compete. We compare ourselves to people that we see as worse than us. We try to do great things for God, great things for other people, all proving to him and to ourselves that we are good, that we do everything that we can to drag ourselves out of the depths of guilt. But you know what, guys? That doesn't work either. Because how do you know when you've done enough? How do you know when you've pulled enough weight? How do you know uh, when you've proven yourself that you've earned God's favor? This is basically the problem of religion without grace, without the gospel, which calls you to be good and to prove your moral record. But how do you know when you've actually done it? It puts you on this exhausting treadmill where you never know if you've arrived. And so neither of these approaches work, y'all, dealing with our guilt. Suppressing your guilt, denying your guilt doesn't work. Working your way out of the depths of guilt doesn't work. So what do we do? How do we manage our guilt? Well, let's look at what the psalmist does. Let's look at the path to the heights The first thing he does and that you can do is to admit the truth of your guilt. Look what he does. He doesn't suppress his guilt. He doesn't deny it. He acknowledges it. He says, my record of sin, it's real. It's there. It's true. He's not denying there's a problem. He's saying, here it is. He admits, there's no way I can stand before the holy God, verse 4. You know, there's something terrifying about being exposed this is why Adam and Eve, when they realized that they had sinned and they were rebels, they just jumped into the bushes and hid because there's something terrifying about being exposed as rebels and guilty before God. And, this, and we do that in all kinds of different ways, hiding ourselves. And yet the first step out of the, out of the depths is admission. Truthful acknowledgement of who we are as sinners. The first path stepped on the path to freedom is to be seen and to be known and to acknowledge the truth of our guilt. This is why every week we do this collective confession, saying both individually and collectively that we uh, are sinners. We do this to remind ourselves that we can speak truthfully to God. And as long as we suppress our sin and deny it, we remain hidden and we can't receive the good word of God's mercy and grace. That's the first thing to do on this path to the heights. Admit the truth of your guilt. But then secondly, he believes the truth of God's mercy. He doesn't look to himself to work his way out of the depths. He looks to God. I love, love, love the turn from verse 3 to verse 4. It's amazing, isn't it? Look at verse 3. He says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, who can stand but with you? there is forgiveness. It's one of the glorious buts of the Bible, the, the, the beautiful conjunctions of, of Scripture. I am guilty as charged, but with you there is forgiveness. I deserve judgment and wrath, but you are a God of mercy. Yes, God is a God of holiness and justice and a God who cannot tolerate darkness and sin, but His forgiveness overcomes his wrath. Verse 7, he says, with the Lord is unfailing love. Unfailing love. That is that beautiful, wonderful Hebrew word, chesed, which means God's everlasting, unfailing, never giving up, always, never stopping love. That's the love that God has for us, the Lord, the one who has revealed himself to us as a covenant God of love. He sees and knows our sin, yet he does not hold it against us. He keeps no record of wrongs. His final word over us is love. Brene Brown, the uh, famous speaker and, and lecturer and researcher, says that what we most fear... Is to be exposed. Yet what we most want is to be known. And this puts us in this great paradox, this great tension that we all long to come out of the darkness to be known, yet we are terrified of being exposed by the light. So we want to be known, yet we also want to be loved. Yet we all kind of believe deep down that we fear that if we are truly known as we are, we will not be loved. And if we are loved, it must be because we are not fully known. And so we're in a paradox. We're caught. We're a tension. So how do we solve it? It's solved by this God of love that he is the one, the only one who fully knows you. He sees everything. He knows everything. The things you hide from other people, the things you even hide from yourself, he sees all. He, knows, he fully knows you, and yet he fully loves you. In God's sight, you can be honest about the truth of who you really are. You don't have to hide. You can name your guilt, acknowledge sin, and yet we know at the same time that we are fully loved, that we without a doubt are forgiven, are accepted, are embraced, and we are loved. Isn't that amazing? And how do we know this is true about God? Because of Jesus. Because he has revealed himself to us this way in Jesus. Look at verse 8. Jesus is right here in this psalm. It says, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. I love what one commentator said that I read this week. He said, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist foresees that God himself will one day come to save God Himself will redeem us through His unfailing love. God Himself does it. He, doesn't, he sees us down in that pit and He doesn't give us a set of rules. He doesn't throw down a, uh, some advice about how to live a better life. He doesn't even throw down a rope and tell us to climb on up. No, what does He do? He comes down, He enters into the depths. He enters into the pit. He identifies with it. So he enters into the, the deepest sorrows of. Of judgment for us, bearing our guilt with us, and then rising from the dead, he triumphs over extinguishing our guilt, guaranteeing that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Him. So we can be certain, absolutely certain, that God loves and forgives our sin because Jesus has borne our guilt and given us His favor forever. I love uh, this this prayer that uh, a friend of mine sent to me this week written by a Puritan pastor. Let me read it to you. He says this, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made a shame that I might inherit glory, endured darkness, that I might have eternal light. That's how you deal with guilt, friends. You don't deny the truth of your guilt. You don't pretend like it's not real. You don't suppress it, and you don't try to work your way out of it. You never will. You look to Christ alone, who has taken our guilt upon himself, and in this glorious exchange, given you his glory and his favor, instead welcoming us into God's family forever. That is called mercy, grace, friends. In Jesus, we see how seriously God takes sin and guilt, that Jesus would be crushed for our iniquities. And in Jesus, we see how seriously God, the triune God, loves us because he would endure this for us to cleanse us from sin and free us from death. Because of Jesus, we can be certain you are fully known. You are fully loved. So that's how we do it. That's what we get from the path from the depth to the heights, from guilt to acceptance, from shame to freedom. So let me just end with just with two words that the psalmist uses at the very end here of the psalm. These two great words. I love these words. He says this, wait and hope. Wait and hope. First of all, wait, he says. Verse six, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning Or then watchmen wait for the morning. You know, the truth is, friends, you know, this sounds very easy, doesn't it? That, you know, oh, you just think about Jesus, and you go from the depths of that. Well, you know what? It doesn't really work that way. (laughs) Uh, I have been in seasons where I have felt trapped in a sense of shame and guilt and worthlessness for a really long time. And I can know that Jesus loves me, but yet I just cannot get out of the depths. Sometimes it takes a long time. And, and this psalmist compares his soul in the darkness of guilt to a watchman waiting for the dawn. And I don't know if you've ever done that before. You've ever been up all night waiting for the dawn or you, you've maybe had an insomnia or haven't been able to sleep. It's horrible uh, where you're just, I mean, the, the minutes are just dragging by interminably and all the sounds are really eerie and you feel lonely and you feel afraid and it's, everything's kind of creepy. Well, here's what you always know. Dawn always comes. The sun always rises no matter how long the night may seem. And that, says the psalmist, is the confidence that you can have in God's mercy and love, even when you are in the depths. So I just want to encourage you. Are you in a dark night right now? Are you stuck in guilt and shame? Are you wrestling with the devil? Are you hearing the whispers? in your mind of your own worthlessness? And that's like on repeat over and over again. Do you feel like you're cut off from God? Do you feel like you're struggling to trust in his love? Do you feel like you're in a deep darkness and you don't know any hope? Well, listen, the psalmist says, wait for the Lord. The scripture says, in the name of Jesus, there is forgiveness. He will give you mercy. He will give you grace. And it may be a long night. You may be in a place of struggle for a while sometimes, but peace will come. After that long period of waiting and spiritual conflict as surely as the dawn follows darkness so surely will God give you his mercy and his love so wait for it yearn for it fight for it his love is for you. his love for you is as certain as the dawn wait and then one last thing he says hope verse 7 oh israel put your hope in the lord for with the Lord is unfailing love. Did you notice that right up into verse seven, this psalm is very personal, very individually, focused on this guy's personal struggle? And yet suddenly in verse seven he turns outward to his own community and he invites them too to hope in God's mercy and forgiveness as he has. See, the one who has truly tasted mercy, grace, and forgiveness will never want to keep it to herself or himself, but will always yearn that others around her will also taste the goodness and the joy of God's mercy and forgiveness. Christians do not sit back on their haunches, enjoying forgiveness, while the rest of the world rots. No. We are those who glory in our forgiveness by announcing its possibility to others, like D.T. Niles said, we are like beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And so I just want to exhort you, friends, many around you, your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, many people around you find themselves in the depths right now, find themselves struggling with guilt, with shame, with worthlessness, with a sense of failure, directionlessness. And I just want to exhort you, friends, you may be a voice of hope. You may be one, to show and point where the bread is, where to look for the light. This week, let's do that. Let's surrender to the Spirit's work in us so that we may announce to others, you too, friend, you too, you can also be known. You also are loved. Would you pray with me? maybe just for a moment, you would speak to God about anything that has stirred in your own soul, perhaps about your own guilt or shame or sense of sin. Would you just take a moment to admit that to Him and to look to Christ, rejoicing that in Him you are forgiven? Father, we thank you for the good news of this psalm. We thank you that even in the Old Testament there is this foretaste of Jesus, um, the one who indeed come, came into our depths to bear our guilt uh, and to die our death and to raise to our uh, eternal life. And we pray, Lord, that we would be those who first make that same journey from the depths to the heights, that we too would experience the joy of what it means to be loved and forgiven, to be fully known and fully loved. And then help us to bear witness to that truth to other people in our lives, people who are in the depths. May we too point them to the light of the good news of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.